Good morning to each of you. We continue our series that we began probably two months ago now um, in 1 Corinthians 13, and we've got about three more weeks in this, and we will uh, conclude in about three weeks. The next series is to be determined. You can be praying that the Lord gives the leaders of Grace Bible Church wisdom uh, in choosing what the next exposition will be. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Some folks think that loving other people is weak and foolish, but it's actually unloving people that are the ones that are weak. Why? Because they're controlled by, because they're, they're self-centered and that's what they're controlled by. And so the inclinations are that they want to walk all over people and take advantage of people. Jesus himself demonstrated others-centered love, and he was not weak, I assure you. We need to understand that the language of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, commonly called the love chapter, is very complex. Though some of us have read it hundreds of times, though maybe it's hanging in the wall of your hallway or in a restroom or in your bedroom, Uh, maybe it's knitted on a carrying bag of some sort, that the the language is very complex. We need to not rush through it. Many of the words that Paul uses in his description of what love is in the center part of the chapter where we find ourselves are only found in the New Testament in this one place. Not all of them, but many. And then when you come to this particular verse that we'll be looking at today, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Um, The takeaway is that love is tenacious. It is strong. Um, These characteristics will be mocked by the world and even some Christians. And in reality, when you read what I just read, that love does these four things, all things, all things, all things, that it makes you feel uneasy. One thing it'll do is remove a critical spirit from you. Uh, Maybe you are always looking on others with suspicion. But this passage, indeed, will make you vulnerable. And it's good to be vulnerable, brothers and sisters, um, if you would love the way a Christian should. Now, this does not dismiss discernment. Paul talks about that in other places. Philippians 1.9 is... One place where he prays for the church in Philippi. And this, I pray that your love may abound still more in real knowledge and discernment. And so love there is couched in knowledge and discernment. So let's read the passage. I'm just going to read verses 4 to 8 to give us the the broader, the the full description here. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into an account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we do come to you as a needy people, and we would ask, Lord, that your word would be driven like large nails deep into our hearts. 
And Lord, that the Spirit, as it were, would be swinging the hammer, driving these truths into our heart. Lord, we confess we fail in so many ways in this, these descriptions of which I've just read. But Lord, we know with the Holy Spirit, you are all-powerful to change. And so, Lord, we pray that you would indeed mold us into the image of Christ who, who um, exemplified all of these traits perfectly. And Lord, we thank you that it is his present intercession that gives us encouragement even now. So, Lord, we come to you asking your assistance even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I didn't, I should have began, I guess, at verse 1, but he says that if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, I've become a noisy gong. Uh, Claiming to have love but not really having love is empty. And love is everything ethically speaking according to the Bible, hence it is important that we understand what this Christian love is is in this love chapter. It's Love is not so much what it is, but what love does. Remember, these are all verbs. There's 15 descriptions that are given here. They're all verbs. So this is what love does and what love does not do, as there's eight negatives and seven positives. But these 15 qualities beautifully portray the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his glory, all of his compassion, and his sinlessness. This is exemplified in Christ. These verbs also are in the present tense. It's something that we should be doing ongoing over and over again. Love is patient, he says at the very beginning there. That's profound. And you think of who, who's the most patient person ever? It's God. He's so long-suffering towards us. That he does not give us what our sins deserve. He, he, if, if, he, if he would smite us right away the first time we'd sin, we'd have no hope. But the Lord is patient towards us. Love is kind. Love, love does kind acts. It's not envious or jealous. It doesn't brag. The idea that it's not a windbag that's, that's bragging. It's not arrogant. That, that it's puffed up, like puffing yourself up, an exaggerated self-conception. It's as though you're proud of yourself. And last time, which was about four weeks ago, we considered these other negative ones, that love is not rude, that it doesn't act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own or insist on its own way. It's, it's, it's able to yield and to allow others to have their way. Love is not provoked. That is, it's not cantankerous. And, and this could be, it's in the New Testament, it's positive and negative, but negatively here, it, it means to, to be easily angered, to cause an inward arousal of an angry response. And then he says that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. That is, love does not have the Excel spreadsheet out every single infraction cataloging so that that might be brought up later. Or the scorekeeper analogy where, where the scorekeeper at a baseball game records every single pitch, ball, strike, hit, run, what base, you know, when the runs come in and all of that. Love does not do that. It's a beautiful word picture that Paul uses here. And if you're that type of person that's cataloging those things, it's going to lead to um, being consumed with bitterness. And so we need to be aware of that. Well, as we continue to see 
what this love looks like, the question I have for you is this. Do you think you are fulfilling your Christian duty of love? We spent many months, over six months, in the epistle of John, 1 John. Love was a reoccurring theme, one of the top three reoccurring themes. And we've spent some weeks now in 1 Corinthians 13. Do you think you're fulfilling what God has called you to do? And if you're like me, you see your failures, uh, but we can, I trust all of us collectively can say with a clear conscience, no, we haven't arrived, but we want to grow in these areas. And so allow the word of God to, as it were, retrain our brain. Well, we want to begin in verse 6. I uh, ran out of time and had to rush through this. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love takes notice of the evil in the world and is grieved by it, but doesn't rejoice in it. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness unrighteousness is everything and anything opposed to God's holy law and his perfect character. That's unrighteousness. And and notice what he says here, that that love does not rejoice. Isn't that an interesting choice of words? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. What is it to rejoice? Well, we looked at that last Sunday night, but it's an affection and an affection is, reveals the natural inclinations of your heart. And by heart, I mean your inner man and your personality, your mind, your will. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't take pleasure in unrighteousness. And sometimes this can be manifested by hoping that someone would fall into a certain sin. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's, it's somebody that you're envious about, which we've covered earlier, right? Uh, and, and, and maybe secretly you're saying, if only he would get caught for cheating the books at work or whatever, so that I can then be promoted or whatever the, the rationale is. That's rejoicing in unrighteousness. And one of the most common ways that Christians today violate this, I think, is the area of gossip. Sadly, far too many Christians have large elephant ears when it comes to listening to gossip. Oh, you've got something juicy to say. I'm all ears. Consider that the root of gossip as well is rejoicing in evil. And at a basic level, the motive of gossip is pride, right? It takes delight in the failing of others. Why? So that then you could exalt yourself, so that you give yourself a, a higher estimation as you compare yourselves to others. It is malicious. It is wicked. And yet it's so common. By contrast, the rest of the verse, but notice the contrast. So he finishes the eight negatives. That was the last negative, but rejoices in the truth, not rejoicing in unrighteousness, but rejoicing in the truth. In third John verse three says, for I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in the truth. The truth of what God is and what God has called us to be. It's not just certain facts that are true. 
you know, how, how far away is a light year or something like that, but this is focused on the content of Christianity, the ultimate truth. That's what we, we are to rejoice in, not scientific facts. And, and that's the way Paul uses it throughout the pastoral epistles. And he tells young Timothy, Timothy, guard the truth. He's not saying guard scientific facts. Guard the content of the gospel. That Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that he came and he lived a sinless life, that he was a perfect sacrifice on the cross, was dead, was buried, but was raised victoriously from the dead, is ascended to God, and there he sits at the right hand of God, reigning the truth of who God is and what he has done in the lives of sinners. That's what we're to rejoice in, brethren. Righteousness is predicated on God's truth. Love never rejoices in falsehood, but always rejoices in God's truth. Well, that brings us to verse 7. We look at these last four positive uh, virtues that are listed. It's sort of almost like hyperbole because of the way he says it. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The fourfold all things of this verse makes it plain that love is no human, natural human quality, but it is a gift of God himself. In all the varied circumstances of relationships and circumstances in our daily lives, it is only the love of Jesus which can enable us to bear and to believe and to hope and to endure all things. Of course, the middle two, you will find when we get to the end of the chapter, verse 13, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest is love. Uh, the believing all things, the pistis has the idea of uh, believing that faith uh, that's there. And really there's a chiasm, I think, that's, that's here. The first and the second are very similar, and the, the, the middle two are going to be couched at the end, and um, enable us, the middle two, believing and hoping, enable us to bear and to endure. So we're just going to take these one at a time. Love bears all things. The lexicon uh, BDAG gives two primary definitions, and it could be that Paul has both in mind or perhaps the second one, but I'm just going to give both of them to you because I think they're helpful. The first is this, love covers. In fact, if you look, if you've got a marginal note, as I do, there's a little number next to the word bears, and it actually has the word cover. Love throws a cloak of silence, as it were, over what is displeasing in another person. The noun means to cover like a roof, to actually protect. You think of a hailstorm, you know, that's coming down and you get under shelter. And if it's a metal roof, it's, it's going to make a lot of noise, but, but it provides that shelter. Love does not gossip or listen to gossip. Even if sin is present, love tries to see the least hurt and harm in the guilty party. That's why Peter could say love covers a multitude of sins. But probably here Paul has in mind more so at least the second definition, which is this, to bear up under difficulties, to stand with rooted feet and to endure Love bears up under the heavy load and the, uh, of, of all the problems and sufferings 
that this life brings. The word occurs four times in the New Testament, twice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, um, and verse 5 is one of them. It says, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. Last Sunday night, we were in 1 Thessalonians um, very young church. Paul was rushed out of town. And, and, and here, it's like when I could bear it no longer and I was so concerned for you, I had to send Timothy to find out about your faith. In this very letter is the other example, and it's in 1 Corinthians 9.12. If you just want to turn back a couple pages, you'll see it. <clears throat> Paul is talking about his use of liberty and, and him uh, preaching the gospel and, and offering the gospel without charge. But he says in verse 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. There's our word. Endure, it's translated there. So... We did not use this right, but we endure all things. That is to bear up under difficulties. That is to be a tent maker, to to work perhaps all day that he could preach and teach and shepherd all night, as it were. He endured all things. Paul could be pointing to himself as a model in in this particular context in 1 Corinthians. The NIV has love always protects But our human nature is fallen, and it takes some depraved pleasure in exposing the faults of others. Rather than bearing it, it wants to expose. And the Corinthians had little regard for the feelings of their fellow Christians. That's evident. I mean, this whole letter is really one of rebuke, but Paul still finds things of which to commend them. Why do you think at the grocery store checkout, all those magazines, I don't even know the names of all of them, but... They're called tabloids. Why are they so popular? What are they doing? There's some expose in this particular actor. There's true confessions from this wife. There's, you know, the list just goes on and on. But they're popular because man's sinful nature takes delight in that type of stuff. John MacArthur says, love does not expose or gloat over the sins of others. It bears, B-E-A-R-S, not bears, B-A-R-E-S. So it bears rather than bearing. The proverb says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Oliver Cromwell uh, in England in the 1600s, there was a soldier that was condemned to die by execution. He was to die at the ringing of the curfew bell in one of the towers there in London. He was engaged to a beautiful young woman, and with tears, she came to Cromwell himself to plead for his life, but he denied. All the preparations had been made, and it was time for the curfew bell to be rung, but there was no sound. The girl had climbed up into the tower had grabbed the tongue of the inside of the bell and held onto it as the man would pull the rope. He was deaf. He didn't know that it wasn't ringing, uh, as the account goes, but he continued to pull the rope up and down. Bang! She slammed against the iron bell on either side multiple times, but she clung on for dear life. She was wounded. She was bleeding. And finally, uh, the bell never sounded. The man stopped. 
and she came down and explained what she had done, Cromwell instantly removed the charges. What a picture of love to be willing to even step in and take someone's punishment for someone else. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? One poet recounted this story, which is well known in England, and it says this, At his feet she told her story, showed her hands all bruised and torn, and her sweet young face still haggard with anguish it had worn, touched his heart with sudden pity, lit his eyes with misty light. Go, your lover lives, said Cromwell. Curfew will not ring tonight. And what a, what a glorious picture there. The most beautiful characteristics of this love, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The redemptive quality of which Christ had gone to the cross for us. At the cross, God, as it were, threw a mantle over man's sin. As Christ carried our griefs, as he bore our sorrows, as he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. It's as though God says, I'm throwing a a, a cloak over the sins of all of my elect." so that my holy wrath will not consume them. It's a beautiful picture. This type of love throws a mantle over sin because love has a redemptive element. And we read in Leviticus 16 earlier that that the beautiful picture of the Day of Atonement, which prefigured really the whole work of Christ, but in particular, the mercy seat, the mercy seat, it says, moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and the sprinkle and with his finger and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. What was the mercy seat? It was right above the ark. It was there. It was, as it were, a covering for the ark. And it prefigured the final covering of sin that Jesus would accomplish on the cross for us. Now, maybe some of you are in the 1%. Some of you say, okay, the things you're talking about, that applies to 99% of the people out there. But it's different for me. (laughs) Don't ask me to bear up under all of this. No, it applies to all. Love never gives in to the pressures of the world around us. It bears up under all of the burdens and, and difficulties and trials that come our way. Paul says, why not rather be wronged and just bear it? To to bear is, uh, here it's really bookends in verse 7, I see it, but here it's love bears all things, that is not giving in, and it endures all things, as we'll see last, which it doesn't give up. Continues to press on. Secondly, love believes all things. Now, this does not mean that one is ignorant and gullible, that just, oh, really? You've got three eyes, okay, um, (laughs) or whatever. No, it doesn't mean that, or some naivety, or whatever. But it believes the best outcome towards somebody. This is not always trusting those who God has placed around us, but it's trusting God who is sovereign in his providence as he rules in the lives of those that God has placed around us. So it really is a faith thing. With loved ones, love is not cynical and suspicious all the time. As Jesus himself dealt with the 12 disciples, and they were weak, weren't they? They were filled with failures. And yet Jesus continues to deal with them in love, believing the best and being hopeful of how they would turn out. 
Love believes the character of God and His Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. It believes that God is indeed ruling all things in His perfect providence. He's in control. We don't have to seek to be in control. He's in control. Now, by contrast, remember Job? Remember his friends? (laughs) The friends seemed to take this the complete opposite, didn't they? They were ready to believe what? The worst? They had no evidence to base their assumptions on, and yet they believed the worst about this man that was suffering so greatly, had lost his children, most of his possessions, himself covered with boils, cursing the day he was born in such a low place, and they come, Job, it's because of your great sin of which all of this has happened to you. So they believe the worst. Who needs friends like that? Job himself didn't even understand why he was suffering at this point, and yet his friends would not give him the benefit of a doubt. The Pharisees, the same way with Jesus, right? Remember? The same way with Jesus and the disciples. Love believes the best. Hatred believes the worst. So where do you fall? Where do you fall? What are you more prone to? Faith sees people in the affairs of our life through the lens, as I said earlier, of God's sovereign providence that he's in control, that his purposes in his people and in the church will indeed be accomplished. Isn't that what is said through the prophet Jeremiah? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And that's to the exiles as they were in Babylon. Whatever happens in our lives, We know that it has a purpose. We know that there's a God that's shaping us and molding us into the image of Christ. And sometimes there's those sharp, rough edges that need to be sanded with a a thicker grit sandpaper. You know, it's not just the automotive, real smooth stuff that takes off virtually nothing. Sometimes he has to get the, the, the file out, as it were, to file off these rough edges that are on us as he conforms us into the image of Christ. And we need to believe that not only about ourselves, but by ourselves we can see that, but also in the lives of other children of God. Faith rests on the promises of God. Romans 8, 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that God works all things for our good, Romans 8, 28. So love bears all things, it believes all things, and now it hopes all things. Again, not a naive optimism, but seeing the bright side of things. When love runs out of faith, it still has hope. And brothers and sisters, the church situation in Corinth was a mess, wasn't it? I mean, it was a mess. Read this epistle. I just finished reading it again. It's The church situation was a mess. But Paul does not give up hope on them, does he? In fact, he expresses his confidence for them many times, and especially in his second letter. He says in 2 Corinthians 7.4, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Okay? 
And we've already read in different in previous sermons in this series about the, the gross sin of the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 7.16, <clears throat> I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So Paul hoped all things. He hoped even in the, the church at Corinth that it could be restored and repaired and, and, and that parties that have sinned grossly could repent and be brought back in. Well, this hope is not an empty wish. This hope is really in God who is victorious in the lives of his people. That's why it's so important to be joined to a local assembly. Because if you're trying to just live with me, myself, and I, and Jesus, you're, you, you, you might be miscued when, as you evaluate yourself. But as you interact with other brothers and sisters and we're, we're sharpened, the men sharpen the men with like iron sharpens iron and the women get together and the body functions together, that, that we can actually see growth in each other. We can see progress in our sanctification. We can see progress in our understanding of the deep things of God. And we can be encouraged and we can hope in that context. Hope in God's promises gives us, a, a, as it were, a realistic optimism that should be there and a settled confidence that God is working into the future. Romans 8, Paul talks about hope a lot at the end of the section. He says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for he, who hopes for what he already sees? I read a story of a dog that was left at an airport, a large airport, um, and the, the master somehow forgot him or got separated, and they just left the dog there. They kept feeding it, taking care of it, but the dog stayed in the same corner that its master had left him, for five years, and finally was reunited to his master. Um, if the love of a dog for his master could produce that type of hope, can we not have that kind of hope in one another? Of course, Jesus suffered the greatest agony on the cross that we could ever imagine. He was innocent and never sinned, and yet he's crucified with those criminals, one on the right, one on the left. Praise God for Luke's gospel that tells us that that one thief repented and believed. But notice what he says, even on the cross, he is hoping in God. He asked God, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then later, at the end of that section of which Colin read, after crying out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, that phrase would be used by several martyrs throughout history. Um, Polycarp, um, John Huss, I believe. There, I'm probably missing some. But did you know that was a phrase from, it's a Psalm of David. Psalm 31, verse 15. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Another fascinating story from England, just happens to be, um, Lady Jane Grey, you remember her? She was martyred as a teenager, very young, but she had a strong, resolute faith in God. She was the, I think, the cousin to Bloody Mary. And in fact, I, I believe she reigned for about 10 days before she gave up the throne to Mary. But on the scaffolding, as she was um, being taken up to be beheaded, 
The morning of February 12th, this would be 1554, Jane was brought to the White Tower where a small crowd and an executioner awaited her arrival. Turning to the onlookers, excuse me, Jane announced, I do look to be saved by no other means, but only by the mercy of God in the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. She then knelt, recited Psalm 51 um, in its entirety. Have mercy on me, O God. Once she was blindfolded, she groped over on her hands and knees, I believe, to the executioner's block, found the groove, laid her head in the groove. And the last sound that the crowd, that the crowd heard before the axe thudded the block was a prayer from Jane and her 17-year-old voice, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So love hopes all things. Even in the face of death is our Lord and many martyrs have endured. And that leads us to the last. Love endures, or you can think perseveres, in all things. And this has the idea to maintain a belief or a course of action in the face of opposition. To, to stand one's ground, to hold out, to, to endure. It perseveres in the face of great opposition and even great unkindness. And it's bookends, like I said, with the very first virtue. Love is patient. The last, love endures all things. They're similar meanings. They're different words, but similar meanings indeed. Peter in 1 Peter 2.20 says, For what credit is you? What credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is gracious in the sight of God. That's our word there. If you do good and you suffer and you stand strong and you persevere, this is gracious. A gracious thing in the sight of God. Love never gives up or quits, brethren. One person, one commentator said this, this is the kind of love that treats others around them when they fail, even when they fail repeatedly with the encouragement that I will not leave you. I am by your side. I am walking through this with you. This quality of love means that it lasts. It doesn't expire it's not as though I'll give you five years, maybe 30 years or whatever, but my expiration date's coming up, like on a carton of milk, the stamp that's there, you know, and there's an expiration date. Milk, milk, love does not have an expiration date. Milk does. Um, A.T. Robertson said that, uh, the idea of this word, that it carries on like a stout-hearted soldier, carries on in the fiercest battle. Standing one's ground. Love will stand against opposition. And it rejects the idea to stop bearing, to stop believing, to stop hoping, and to stop persevering and enduring. Love continues to love like this. Think of Jacob. Jacob endured. Remember Laban's house? He's there. He wants... Uh, Rachel, and, and he's there, and he serves for seven years. He's given Leah, and then he serves for seven more years. <clears throat> and yet it said this, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his great love for her. 
Isn't that wonderful? He endured. He stood strong. Consider another great hero, Moses, one of the greatest leaders of Israel. We see him bearing up, believing, hoping, and enduring all things. For 40 years, <coughs> Excuse me. he led those stubborn people throughout the wilderness. And yet, those stubborn people did what? Falsely accused him of all manner of stuff, and he endured. They accused him of evil motives. Excuse me, uh, trying to kill their children, of of having pride. They even tried to um, uh, stone him once. Uh, Just a few verses, Exodus 14, 11. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have brought, taken us away to die in this wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? So they're grumbling right at the beginning, Exodus 14. Exodus 16, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now you're starving us to death. They complain about water in another place. In Numbers 14, our wives and our little ones will become plunder. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. What a rebellious people. And then even his brother and sister, remember, rebelled and stood up against him. Do you remember that in Numbers 12? Um, They spoke evil of him. Has the Lord only spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? Amazing. How hurtful. The people that you're loving and leading and shepherding and being falsely accused again and again. And Moses endures. He believes and hopes all things and he endures. How hurtful it is when even family members turn against you, but Moses forgave them. In fact, four separate times, God's ready to destroy this people. And who is interceding on their behalf? But Moses. There's once where he begs God to destroy the people, and God doesn't. But, uh, but what a beautiful picture here of persevering because of love through all the challenges of life. Well, a couple concluding points for us. Again, ask yourself, how do you measure up to these 15 descriptions of what love does? This is what, these are the things that love does. Not just what love is abstractly. This is what love does. Insert your name where it says love. I don't think there's a bill here, but (laughs) Bill is patient. Bill is kind. He's not jealous. Bill does not brag, is not arrogant. You get the idea. Insert your name through that passage and see how you measure up. Let me ask you another thing, and maybe this might be more encouraging. We've been going through this for, I don't know, four or five weeks. We've had a break over the holidays and such. But uh, have you seen a change in how you're living? Have you been able to apply more of these things in your everyday Christian life? Brethren, the only way that we can do these things that we're called to do is if we're ravished and filled with the love of Christ. 
Because this is not a natural human inclination at all. In fact, far from it. But we must be saturated with the love of Christ. We must be filled with the Spirit of God, which will enable us to do these things. How you love your spouse, your child, your uncle, your neighbor is all predicated upon this. You must remember the cross of Christ and His great love for us. It will enable you to die to yourself. Isn't that what discipleship is? Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. We must die to self, brethren. And then also, fellow members of of a local body, love says to love each other and persevere together with the collective aim of locking arms. We are journeying to the celestial city that is heaven, and we're going there together, and we're going to hold one another up on the way. Consider these last four Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. In a nutshell, the takeaway from this text is that when things get difficult from the circumstances and people in your life, you resolve, your resolve is that you don't not back away from it. One commentator wrote this, only love for God, released by his love for us, can keep such faith and hope alive and in control of our daily lives. When we realize afresh, Jesus loves us in this way. He bears everything we throw at him. He still believes in us and is quietly confident for us. And he has endured even the cross for us. Then we take to heart again and know that only his love can sustain us and make us the people, the church, that he wants us to become. If you're outside of Christ, you know nothing of this love. Oh, you can put on an outward, you know, you know, uh, put on an outward show and not retaliate or be provoked, and maybe you've got a very patient composure, but deep down it's not going to go to your heart. The only way you can experience this wonderful love that God has for his people and then therein be changed to be able to do these expressions of love is if you repent of your sin and come to Christ. If you run to him as a savior, not only who is worthy to be worshiped and bowed down to, but who is a suitable savior, who's taken care of everything that is necessary for your salvation. Jesus says in John 6, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. The one who comes to me, I shall not cast out. You say, well, I don't know. Will will he receive me? He said, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. But your job is this, to turn, to turn from your sin, turn from your exaltation of self, to turn away from everything and run to Christ who is there with open arms to receive you. If you haven't done that, I beg you, have dealings with God, even this very day. Don't lay your head on a pillow tonight again. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sharp and that it pierces our soul. And Lord, we pray that your word would be effective in our lives, even right now, even as we consider what we have heard. Lord, we pray that you would give us special assistance 
to be able to do the things that you've called us to do. We thank you so much for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for that sanctifying work. We thank you for that supernatural ability that he gives us. Oh, Lord, receive our thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.